0: welcome to on the issues with michelle goodwin at ms magazine a show where we report rebel and you know we tell it like it is on this show we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times on our show history matters we examine the past as we think about the future on today's show we take our programming to the community in a way, we're taking it to the virtual streets. We are on the ground with the American Constitution Society, otherwise known as ACS, for a program with Representative Leslie Harrod of Colorado and Attorney General Aaron Ford of Nevada. This program is part of a four-part series. In fact, it's the final installment of a four-part series that I launched with the organization in the wake of the tragic deaths of Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. We began these conversations as a set of national town hall meetings, engaging judges, academics, law school deans, and now the people who make policy. Today, we're having a conversation about being black in public office, challenges, demands, and staying true to oneself. Now, helping us to do this is Attorney General Aaron Ron Ford. He's Nevada's 34th Attorney General. He took office in January of 2019, making him the first African American to hold statewide constitutional office in that state. He's a former state senator of Nevada. A.G. Ford previously served as both the majority leader and the minority leader in the Nevada State Legislature, but he started his career as a public school math teacher, shaping hundreds of lives. And I'm also joined by Representative Leslie Harrod. And let me just take a pause to say, We fangirl her at Ms. Magazine. She was elected in 2016 as the first LGBTQ African-American in the General Assembly, while receiving the highest number of votes of any candidate running in a contested election. She serves as the chair of the House Finance Committee, vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee, and chair of the Committee on Legal Services. Representative Harrod also chairs the Colorado Black Democratic Legislative Caucus. I'm going to start off the questions with just giving a bit of background for those who are listening, who are wondering about career paths and how you get to where you are. So I want to start first with you, Representative Harrod. What was the path that you took to becoming a member of, um, the legislature in Colorado? Is that something that you had ever planned for, or is it something that just kind of happened?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that that question. It's really one that... it's interesting, right? Because I had always wanted to be in politics and do public policy. Um, but without seeing anyone who looked like me, um, who was Black or, um, or gay, you know, it was really hard for me to imagine in that seat, especially in the city I love right here in Denver. Um, but I was mentored by an amazing Black woman who um, served as the only Black woman when she served. And I'm really happy that we are past that time, um, who really helped me to understand and see that I had what it took to win um, and to represent the district in a, in a really strong way. And so she is still my mentor to this day. Um, and she's really one of the folks that convinced me to run. And I'm not from Denver, I'm actually a military brat. My mom served uh, as an OBGYN in the army. I was born in Germany. I went to school up in Boulder and then came down to Denver. Uh, and that's where I found the community I love, which is in Northeast Denver. Uh, and so it is a was a very untraditional path. But I will say that I did have an inkling for leadership and, and being an elected official because I ran in the fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> um, government. The <laughs> and really never stopped. So I also did it at CU Boulder. Um, and CU Boulder has the largest student government in the nation. And so being able to see the impact that we could have on policy as students really did give me the fire and the understanding that uh, you can actually shape people's lives by passing good public policy.
0: And so that's why I'm here. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned the fourth grade because I remember um, becoming a cadet. For, for the rest of you, if you don't know what cadets are, we were just the crossing guards. But that was the fourth <laughs> grade, and I was the youngest person that was mm-hmm. made a cadet. I, and I remember I was I wore so proudly that, like, orange best thing that they gave us. And so, yes, it's sort of getting active and involved as a child actually really does matter. Um, Absolutely. And I'm going to follow up with with that um but ag ford what was your path especially given that you were in, you were teaching first and in math what we were, it was k through 12 what was the age group that you were teaching math to and what was that moment like for you where you decided okay i, I need to put this to the side I, I enjoy working with my students but i have this other calling
2: yeah, actually, it was a. Well, first off, let me say thank you so much, Professor, for having me. Thank you, to ACS, for doing doing this. Uh, Representative Herrick, great to share the screen with you. Uh, my son is the Buff Buffalo. He, he graduated from CU Boulder a few years back. He's over at Georgetown now in the medical school program, and so uh, um, go Buffs. That's like small world. Okay, we all it is.
0: Look it is. This. It
2: is. I actually I have a, a law degree, but I have a PhD as well. And in route right to my PhD, I wanted to get a a degree in international education. Uh, and CU Boulder had a program and I actually applied. And right when I got admitted, they decided to discontinue the program. So I might've been a buff too. I'm just saying (laughs) back back in the day, Uh, you know, that said, Let me, let me get to your question, Professor. Again, thanks for for having me here. But my route to politics uh, wasn't directly after um, being an educator, actually. There were a a couple of things and I can't say that I've always known I wanted to be in politics, except that I did run in the fourth grade too. Uh, Uh, maybe not fourth grade. I remember I was looking for a picture actually on my phone uh, that my grandmother sent me um, when I was standing behind a student government table in the seventh grade. So I know at yeah. least by seventh grade, I was I was in office, so to speak. Yeah. Right? Um, but again, not necessarily thinking that I do not know what politics was. I mean, uh, this is not something that we paid much attention to. Um, you know, in, in my house, my mom and dad were worried about just ensuring we can get some fruits and vegetables on the table. Right. Uh, but, but I, you know, I um, started as a school teacher teaching middle school and high school. I taught algebra one, algebra two, geometry. Um, and I did that for about three years. But I was doing it while I was also um, working on my, my postgraduate degrees. I went to Texas A&M undergrad, went out to George Washington and got my first master's degree. And I taught school both in Texas and Austin. That was middle school. But then when I got to uh, D.C., was teaching at a high school level. Uh, out in Lake at Lake Braddock Secondary School uh, in uh, Burke, Virginia, right outside D.C., and then moved to Ohio, which is where I got my second master's degree, my law degree, and my Ph.D. Now I went to Ohio State to get my Ph.D. Um, and learned about the law as as an area of practice. I was an educator um, and wanted to open up charter schools. That was that was my plan. That's what I thought I was going to do—an international system of charter schools. The Carter G. Woodson International School System. Oh my,
0: you had it set.
2: I had it laid out. There was gonna be international exchange program between schools in Latin America and inner city schools in the United States. Because I speak Spanish fluently and I just have always enjoyed uh, you know, inter- intercultural exchange. But I got over there and I learned about uh, an area of law called education law, where I could actually combine uh, two areas of interest that I had, which was education and the law. And I um, graduated law school um, clerked on the district district court in Detroit, clerked uh, on the Ninth Circuit out here in Vegas, uh, and then went to work for a law firm practicing school law before ultimately moving into litigation for what ended up being about 20 years. My first foray into actual political office uh, happened in 2010. uh, And it was because my son and I had just moved back, my son, my family and I had just moved back, and my oldest son, the one I was talking about, who went to Boulder, uh, jokingly asked me why I moved him if everything, if everything I do was for the benefit of the family, why would I move them back to Nevada, which was ranked dead last in education? Wow. Uh, you know, wow.
0: You know, the kids will, will drop those little pearls on Absolutely. you and make you have to Absolutely. say, huh? Right.
2: You know, so so he was joking and I and I said, ha ha ha, but that ain't funny. It's a good question. And so let me uh let me see what I can do about it. Um, and being an educator, I decided instead of being on the outside, I wanted to get inside and try to help fix the educational system. I ran the first time in 2010. And got smashed. Now, uh, Michelle, I think one of the questions that you want to ask or may you reference is what does it take to get there? And I take I yeah. think it takes resilience because I got beat real bad. I got beat like 62 to 28 or something like that, really wow. got demolished in my first race. How do um, you feel about that? You know, it it it, it was it, it took its toll, frankly. I mean, I remember because I, I go to church and I was in church every almost every Sunday, and, and toward the latter part of the election cycle, I was going to different churches introducing myself, trying to get folks out to vote, right? Mm-hmm. I remember one time, one church, one Sunday after the election I had lost, I was sitting in church and the pastor asked for all the visitors to please stand. And I looked around and people were standing I was like, that used to be me standing at the churches as a visitor, introducing them. It really took a toll on me where I was like, it yeah. took about six months, honestly, for me to-, to, to
0: Well, you know, not every parent responds up. as you did. Like, you know, a kid says, well, how about this? Not every parent says, okay, and let me put my hat in, in an election where there hadn't been much diversity beforehand in terms yeah. of the legislature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: um, I just, I decided that I wanted to try to help. So I got in in 2010, lost, ran again in 2012, uh, and won. And um, Michelle, as you've indicated, ultimately rose to the levels of minority leader, um, then my majority leader, and ran for this office of attorney general um, three years ago.
0: And look at where you are now. So Representative Herod, you had a different path. You, you were just a, a burning path. Um, to office, very different, but both are really important to know. I mean, when you first started out, were there times in which there were defeats and where you had to figure out, let me figure out this system because this just doesn't seem to be working because otherwise one might say, you are really so extraordinary and you are, like does she ever lose at anything? Is there ever anything that is hard? And, And let me just take a moment to say before, our time here together on this program. And before your being on my Ms. Magazine podcast on the issues, I came across you in a video where you were breaking it down about tampons to your fellow members of the assembly and you were I think you may have even been holding up one or sanitary pack and you're just (laughs) like let me tell you about what this is and that seemed revolutionary I mean that was as revolutionary as me too is like just standing there and saying let me break this all down for you so along the way were there times that were hard absolutely um and there were definitely defeats and losses and you know what
1: I'll say is um you know, first, when I first graduated college, uh, I was actually working at Mac and 24 hour fitness. And so I worked throughout college while being um, in student government and I graduated in a recession uh, and I did not have a job in my field of political science, and ethnic studies, um, couldn't get an internship or, or a fellowship to save my life. So one day, I just literally walked down to the Capitol with my resume and said, um, "I'm Leslie Hare and I can start tomorrow." And so I started as an unpaid intern in the building. Surprisingly, they said yes. And later, I found they thought I out that they thought I was someone else. But you know what? Take the opportunities when you can get them. Uh, and <laughs> and then I just. Kept working in the building. Eventually um, I was non choice, I was nonpartisan staff and got my first paid gig doing that. Uh, and then worked my way up to senior advisor to the governor at the time, Governor Ritter, and also worked under President Obama for his 2012 re-election campaign. And so when I was elected in 2016, you know, I did have a really good knowledge of what I was getting into. You know, I knew the state capitol. I knew how to pass policy, but I knew it was also not going to be without defeat. Um, And so, well, let me let me show that and just say when I ran, uh, we run ran in a caucus process in Colorado. And so I was running against. an attorney, a white attorney who had uh, much, uh, much more wealth than I do. And uh, much more uh, folks who wanted to give money to him that were wealthy as well. And so we raised a lot of money, it was head to head heated competition. Um, and, you know, one thing that I thought I had to hide about myself in order to win was the fact that my sister uh, was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really talk about it until I realized that um, the fact that I wasn't talking about it may- probably made her feel like, um, I was ashamed of her and I never was. In fact, um, her experience is what led me to do the work that I do for criminal justice reform.
0: And, and, and and part of that experience, even with the tampon work that you were doing because of what women who were incarcerated had to go through and sometimes even doing sexual favors for guards, just in order to get sanitary napkins and tampons. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, the uh, mass incarceration, right? And how much money she was making uh, while she was working on the, uh, you know, working inside a prison and why she was there in the first place, which was substance misuse that was untreated uh, and, you know, felony offenses for zero tolerance policies. And so, you know, all that led to my work. And quite frankly, I tell her now um, that she has helped change the lives of so many people in Colorado um, just because of who she was. And so as I as I ran, I actually lost my caucus. So it was two of us and I came in second. So I lost. Uh, and and, and it was at that mess, point, you guys, I still made the ballot, great. but I lost. <laughs> but at that point, uh, I called up my staff and said, we're, we're, we are going to run as real and as authentic um, as we possibly can, because if I'm gonna lose, I'm at least gonna create and, and have a conversation about what needs to change. For our communities to actually thrive, and I did that, and then of course I won, as you said, with the highest vote count in Colorado history, and have been able to actually not only talk about that in the election, but then change policy while elected, uh, and so. But some bills took three years. Some bills have taken you know, longer than that. Some bills have never gotten introduced. And so it does come with ebbs and flows. Um, but if you just keep fighting, you know, you can make real change. And right now, since the community is so behind real change and real reform, now is really the opportunity to do it.
0: So I I want to get to your day-to-day lives. What's the real work that you do so that folks understand that, but you all have opened up a door and, and I'm going to actually walk through that door because you've talked about family and we are talking about elevating black lives. And there have been, there was a January 6th insurrection. There have been the marches through Charlottesville. Uh, we have seen a reckoning taking place across the United States with regard to race, um, and so family. How has that been? You know, sort of pulling together the the lives that you have, the careers that you have. What has what has family meant? And not everybody is fortunate enough sometimes because families are fractured. But but I do want to, to just at least put a question out there about. Um, how important has it been in terms of lessons that you had along the way? Because you both mentioned as kids being invested and involved in what was happening around you. So who inspired that? How did that happen? Was that just you? You woke up one day or was was there something else that you saw or some lessons that you were getting? And so AG Ford, I'll turn to you and then turn back to you. My um, parent.
2: Oh, that's a that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, for me, the, the truth of the matter is family is the priority. Like I said, what, what, what initially prompted me to run was a question from my son. Um, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned January 6th, you've mentioned um, Charlottesville. You know, we, we've talked about the impetus of this being the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Uh, I'm a black man married to a black woman, raising three black sons and a black nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you talk about insurrections, you talk about attacks uh, on people who look like us, um, uh, it, it strikes a chord and it strikes a very real chord. So uh, it's at the front of my mind. Um, you know, Rep. Herod talked about running a real and authentic campaign. That's how I roll. The truth of the matter is I am Aaron Ford, um, no one else. I don't try to be anybody else because that's already taken. <laughs> I'm Aaron Ford and and the way that I speak, the way that I operate, what I, what what motivates me, I'm unafraid and unabashed when it comes to dealing with it. If you look at my Twitter feed, for example, uh, my, my introduction says Aaron Ford husband, father, uh, and you know, candidate for, because that's the order of priority in my life. I'm the husband, I'm the father. And then everything else is secondary, tertiary, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so when, when confronted with, with challenges or debates, um, that that I just keep in mind that I'm here for a particular reason for with a particular voice and that if my voice, if I don't speak up on an issue, then it's a waste. I'm right. possibly um, um, disallowing an actual um, component of of or piece of the puzzle um, to go missing. You know, and I'll give you one example about how important my family is because it was in response to I'm um, certain, um, Leslie can associate with this to a lobbyist coming to me one time with his client uh, sitting to me when I was majority leader. I was at the head of my table. They were next to me and my assistant leader was at the end of the table. And, and this was a controversial topic we were talking about. I was I was supporting a bill that they didn't like. And, and the lobbyist said to me, um, you remember what happened to former so-and-so and so-and-so, a former representative? And I said, yeah. Um, he says, yeah, remember he lost when he took that particular industry on. I said, yeah, and it was a veiled threat telling me that if I take this on, I might lose. And I said to them, I looked him dead in his face, and I said, listen, uh, I'm up here with you right now, but I have a husband, I have a wife, and children in a home that I love. Uh, and if and the worst you're going to do is send me home to them, you're doing me a favor. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I proceeded to pass that bill, and that bill is helping millions of people in the city of Nevada right now. Uh, because my focus, my primary focus is on what's best for the Nevada family recognizing Mm -hmm. that this job is temporary, Uh, whether it's one term or two, I'm termed out in two terms. I might lose after one. So I'm gonna do the best I can for the most people I can for the short amount of period that I have because family is just that important.
0: I really, really appreciate hearing that in so many different ways because there's so much that you've put in that, including the importance of one's authentic voice because coming into these spaces of education, of higher education, can impose certain kinds of pressures to become different than what you are to distance yourself from your family from your communities uh rep harrod what would be your response to that
1: absolutely i mean and i completely uh understand what aaron's coming from you know we live in states where our positions are term limited, and I think that that comes with its advantages and disadvantages. But one of them is, is that I know I'm done in eight years, maybe six, maybe four, but you know, I know that that's the fact. And so I'm not here to hold a seat. I'm here to get the job done for my community and thinking about the sacrifice of my family. You know, as I said, my mom joined the army. She joined the army because it was the only way she could get to college. You know, my brother is in the Navy and went through that same route um, to go to go to school and become an anesthesiologist. Um, But my mom really taught me that you know, one, our country matters. It matters so much that it's worth sacrificing for. And these positions truly are sacrifices. And so I always give a head nod to Aaron and folks like Aaron who are, are, you know, partners and raising their families and all of that because it is extremely difficult. The job is demanding and I don't want to sugarcoat that. Um, And I'm I'm single, I have no kids and I feel like sometimes that makes it easier um, to be able to spend as much time and dedicate the time to the job. Um, but it it's it's challenging. And so, you know, my family is I'm blessed to have a family that's supportive. Um, you know, like I said, I'm blessed to have my sister who's, who's been in her circumstance, my brother who also um, failed out of college um, at a junior college in Southern Colorado, uh, only to find that he was just, uh, you know, basically talked down to all of his life and no one realized that he was extremely good at science and is now an anesthesiologist, you know? So just being able to learn from all of our experiences has really helped to craft the policies that I have today. And then there's also the chosen family that a lot of us have, especially as yes. queer Black folks, um, who have been so supportive. And one of those, you mentioned the um, insurrection of the Capitol. One of my chosen family members um, is Congressman Joe Goose, who was um, leading the um, conversation at the time when the insurrection was happening. And I just remember seeing that go down on screen. And, and we've often had conversation about, you know, why we do this job, why we sacrifice in the way that we do, and watching it happen and watching him fight so earnestly, and honestly, for our democracy, while there was an insurrection happening, you know, just really, like, reminded me how important it is that there are more people like us in these positions, doing the work, because quite frankly, I am proud of our democracy, it needs some work, right? And so we need to be there to fix it, to fight for it, and to make sure that it actually lifts up and supports folks who look like me and you. Um, and so, you know, the question about family is one that I think as uh, elected, we all have to really have a conversation about, you know, should we run? You know, what is that? What is the toll it takes on our families? You know, are we willing to put certain parts of our life on hold? And I'll mention, because we're being honest here, yes, when you are, are a state rep, and Aaron knows this, you don't make any money hardly, you know, people think there's money in this job and there's not. And so you really do sacrifice in order to make a change. And, and I think that's why folks like me and Aaron are very similar in that we are bold in our policy decisions because we, we don't need to keep this job forever, you know? It's not for the money, you know? It's, it's not because we really want to go to that Democratic barbecue on a Sunday morning <laughs> or a Saturday morning at 10 a.m. But it's because we know that policy has left us out, out for so long um, that our community, quite frankly, deserves. Uh, the sacrifice and the attention that we need to make change happen.
0: Well, on that note, because you are doing the incredible work and we can think about this over time, just what's been left behind. So just in terms of level setting really, really quickly, slavery ends up being abolished by the 13th amendment, but there's the punishment clause and Colorado was one of the first states, the first state, to do a referendum within the last five years, or maybe now it's five, six years, to remove slavery and involuntary servitude from its state's constitution. After that, Utah and also, um, Utah did it just very uh, recently, which is terrific, and other states are, are thinking about that. Um, but that legacy from slavery to Jim Crow, as being very complicated with hundreds and hundreds of laws all across the country that were unjust laws. Some of them struck down by the 1964 Civil Rights Act and then that great 1965 Voting Rights Act. But we know all around the country with what's happening in terms of voter suppression and other things that this is time of urgency. So this is a lead up question Remora, to the work that you've been doing and some of this legislation. So, so can you give us some of your greatest hits? Because I'm just amazed by what you have been able to get through the Colorado legislature. Let's just be clear. It's been amazing. <laughs> so, so give us some of your playlist. People like Barack Obama's playlist, but but you have a playlist that I think is actually far better. What's some of what's on your playlist? Thank
1: you. Oh, that's a that's a tough question to kind of uh, to kind of and prioritize them in that way. But I will say that um, you know there were bills that I did not think were going to pass. Um, that I was surprised because uh, that did pass because I kind of went across the aisle and 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 said, you know, I know we share this value. I know you understand this is problematic. Like, can we work together on this bill? And surprisingly, some folks said yes. Uh, of course, drug defelonization was one of those bills that I realized we can make a real impact by changing policy. And what people say cannot be done can be done. And so we Uh, defelonized simple possession of drugs throughout Colorado uh, in the first year that we attempted to do that. And it had bipartisan support. I actually ran the bill with a former law enforcement officer out of a very conservative county, um, El Paso County in Colorado Springs, because he said it was a waste of his time to continue to, you know, put people, arrest folks for possession who needed help, not get them help, put them in prison, and then have them back on the streets, six to 18 months later. Uh, and so that was a huge win for me. And again, kind of centered my sister. Um, you talked about tampons, of course, um, requiring tampons for all uh, state, state and um, local f- detention facilities was also one that we passed. And that came from my sister's experience, but also from visiting women's prisons. Um, but more recently, uh, I am extremely proud to um, lead Colorado in the effort for real, true police accountability. You mentioned the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In Colorado, we also have a very familiar name in Elijah McClain. Uh, Elijah McClain was murdered by law enforcement and paramedics. He was not suspected of committing any crime. He was simply a Black young man walking home and was injected with with ketamine uh, and then died uh, in the hospital later. And in working with his mom, Shanine McLean, we passed um, still to this day, the nation's strongest law enforcement accountability um, bills that ended qualified immunity, that put real pen- penalties on law enforcement officers and their departments who harm in our communities and since we've had um, at least a, I would say around a dozen officers who have been released from their jobs and indicted uh, for harm that they 've done and the bill is not even in full effect it's only been a year old and we still have parts that need to be implemented Amazing. and so I'm really proud of that work because it was really led um, by the community uh, and, and, and the unfortunate pain of our community um, but as an elected official was able to do something about it. And I'm just going to name two more things real quick. And I, I yeah. know sometimes. Oh, go go, go, ahead, go on. Is,
0: you <laughs> know what? No, some <laughs> flowers. I'm tossing flowers at you for doing Thank that you. because with both, you know, AG Ford and with you, you've talked about being authentic and putting your full selves out there. Like, look, yeah, this is yeah. what it is. And a lot of people don't do that. And they think, well, you know, let's, you know, it's you are friendly, right? But they think, well, I, I must be friendly and I'll, and I'll wait. And of course, it never comes. But in your right. authentic self, you've put that forward and you've achieved successes. So, so yeah, name those additional two.
1: <laughs> so the other one, of course, you mentioned is the Crown Act. And that is interesting because I ran this bill not knowing that there was also work to kind of build a national coalition. Because a lot of times when national coalitions come together around Black issues, they don't include Colorado at all, because folks don't think black people live in Colorado. <laughs> and that is absolutely not the case. And so but I saw a young cheerleader and um, who went to school in my district who was told that if she couldn't get her ponytail straight and looking like her, her peers that she couldn't compete. And I was a cheerleader. And I remember that feeling. Um, it was very real. And um I remember, all, I was a, a cheerleader and a swimmer, so I remember always struggling with my hair, right? Um, and you know, I reached out and you know told her I understood what she was going through, um, and and commended her for her bravery because her and her mom really did push back. And then it kind of clicked in me, like, wait a minute, I can actually do something about this, you know? I can actually change the law. I don't understand, you know, as not as a non attorney, I don't understand why. Um, Hair discrimination is not considered race discrimination, but I know that that's the fact, right? And so we need to be explicit in breaking down the fact that it is discrimination. And working with the LGBTQ community and adding um, gender and sexual orientation, non-discrimination in our policies, I knew it could be done. And so I actually called the first um, committee hearing of the Black Caucus and invited members from the Black community to come and talk about hair discrimination And to my surprise, hundreds of folks showed up and talked about their experience experiences, including judges, including attorneys, including, you know, um, reporters uh, and media personalities, but also including a lot of kids and black, brown and indigenous and, and Asian folks showed up as well. And so it became this issue that really was a community issue. And we got that bill passed. Um, and it was literally the last bill the governor signed before we went into COVID, and so um, and it's it's in effect now, and people are using it because still to this day, you know, principals and teachers and 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 coaches are saying you have to change your hairstyle, especially if you have dreadlocks, especially if you have you know an afro or or, or protective styles, twists, and that's illegal now in Colorado, and our remedies, and I'm really proud for that. And then the work that I'm really focusing on right now is one that um you know, I think because we have passed so, so many of those policies that, quite frankly, were not necessarily all my ideas, but ones that we've talked about for a long time impacting our community, like mass incarceration, it's really about now building intergenerational wealth. And what do we need to really create wealth for the Black community, for Black people, um, really true pathways to education uh, and success? And so I'm really focusing on housing, um, on that educational pathway, and on entrepreneurs and business um, owners in our communities to make sure that they thrive not only through COVID, but the COVID dollars help, but truly beyond that. So we have that intergenerational wealth in our communities um, to be able to to take the risks and to innovate like other communities have, uh, and to make sure that we are, you know, con- contributing and as thriving as we know that we can be. So that's something that I'm really focusing on now, and I'm really excited for that work.
0: Well, it's it's great to hear that. Here in California, where where I am, there is a beach known as Manhattan Beach, but it used to be known as Bruce beach and bruce beach was uh, a community of uh, beachfront property right on the ocean that was owned by black people and it was burnt they were Mm -hmm. chased out burnt out all of that you know tires slash so many things to get rid of the black community that owned property uh right Mm -hmm. on that beach and eventually um through eminent domain their property was taken away from them it's estimated conservatively, that that property is worth about $85 million today. So when you think about what it means in terms of intergenerational wealth and discrimination that has taken place over time, then we see how black people have been left behind. AG Ford, I want to turn to you because state's attorneys general have played such a crucial role in our democracy. Uh, They always have, Um, but we have really seen that, um, within the last 10 years. Um, and so I, I want to ask you how that is, why that is, what has been the role, what is the role of a state's attorney general and why do you think that it's become such an important role to our democracy?
2: You know, it's a, it's a great question. Listen, we talked about getting started in fourth grade, you know, middle school or whatever, running for office. I can tell you this, I didn't grow up aspiring to be attorney general. I didn't grow up saying, I want to be attorney general when I grow up. I had no clue what attorney general uh, did, and frankly, wouldn't have considered this position until uh, unless someone hadn't presented it to me as an option to to even think about. Um, uh, But it is the most important position that many people have never heard of. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I took an oath um, on January 7th, as you indicated, to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and of the state of Nevada. Um, I knew what that meant. Didn't really know that it meant, however, that I'd be defending the existence, the very existence of our democratic republic mm-hmm. uh, you know, through insurrections, through you know, voter lawsuits and things of that sort. Um, I, I knew that it would give me an opportunity, however, to um, utilize that position, this position uh, in a way to, to I'm gonna borrow Leslie's words, to represent all people, all Nevadans, and uh, that's an important phrase because so, so frequently people in this position, as you've indicated, Michelle, get there and they think they have to slide away from controversial topics. You know, I've arrived here, I need to not rock the boat, I wanna keep this position, I, you know, I better not take on those controversial topics, and that's never been my philosophy. Um, as Attorney General, we have the ability to effectuate real positive change in attacking issues um, from our perch. We have the law uh, that we can utilize in so many different ways. Uh, you know, I commend Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser, uh, who I'm sure has worked with Leslie uh, on, on some 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 things in the past. We've borrowed a lot in Nevada uh, from Colorado, both legislatively when I was there and uh, from a uh, AG perspective, because Phil and I work together uh, you know, quite a bit. And what we end up doing is coming together as a coalition of attorneys general uh, to 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 push for commonality, you know, common uh, um, um, approaches across the nation, obviously making it fit in the state of Nevada uh, or in your respective jurisdiction. But, but I think the key component is is being willing to utilize the position. Uh, again, I said earlier that I'm a black man married to a black woman, raising three black sons and a black nephew. And so when George Floyd was killed, I took to the media airwaves as that person sitting in the intersection between uh, uh, being a black man and wearing a badge, mm-hmm. right, and saying mm-hmm. that I, you know, I I, re- I, I get. Um, what the dilemma is? I remember seeing George Floyd being killed. I remember saying the exact same thing I've always said, which is, "Oh no, uh, another black man being killed by a cop." And the next word I, words I said were, "And ain't nothing gonna happen." Right. So that that was my sentiment. That's what I thought was gonna happen, and I said it out loud from my position of law enforcement. And I said, but we can't let that happen. Fortunately, we have another Democratic, pardon me, another attorney general uh, in Minnesota and Keith Ellison, who likewise was willing to use his mantle uh, to use his platform to effectuate some justice. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it has become uh, more apparent over the course of the last few um you know last decade or so maybe last 15 or 20 years that the attorney general can use this role um to effectuate positive change and not just sit back in a, uh, and 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 be passive right mm-hmm. uh, And and I think that's led to positive, you know, positive opportunities. I get to sponsor bills here in the state of Nevada as attorney general, which is not the case in many places. They have to go find sponsors in the legislature to run bills for them. But I I get 20 bills of my own that I get to run. And so I ran two that were directly responsive to Breonna Taylor's killing. So I passed the bill unanimously that says that no-knock warrants um, uh, can very uh, rarely be used in our state now. I didn't purposefully didn't ban it but I did limit the use of no-knock warrants. And then in response to George Floyd, I ran a bill that passed unanimously as well that gives my office the ability to investigate police departments um, who are uh, alleged to be engaging in patterns or practice of unlawful or discriminatory policing. And these are things that I was able to do um, with the help of members of my office. Uh, And we, we, we held panels, we held forums, we had discussions. Uh, And we ran these bills and they passed unanimously and they got signed on the one year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Uh, So we're we're proud of that. And again, that's something that attorneys general uh, can do um, and that they should consider doing. That's pretty
0: impressive.
1: Yeah, go ahead. You might if I jump in one second because um, I know we have a lot of law students and prospective law students and maybe interns and aides. But the pattern and practice investigation piece is so important. You know, Colorado was the first to pass it in the bill that we passed, uh, and work with the AG to really investigate police departments who can't police themselves and won't police themselves and refuse to. And so the reason why now Aurora is under a pattern practice investigation and we got a huge damning report saying that they have uh, discriminated, which we know against black folks, which was no surprise to us, but it was in clear writing and when it happened and how it happened. And now they are under threat of a lawsuit if they don't change. And so these kind of small policies that might not catch the attention of, uh, of the masses always can make a huge difference But only if you elect good attorney generals and elect good people in every position, not going to say what party, but good folks who actually align with your values, you can make real change. And all of these positions really do matter.
0: Well, in building on that, I, I want us to turn to questions about our democracy in the last quarter of our program. And this has just been such a great program. It, you, you both are just fabulous. Uh, yes, exactly. I, I wish we were together in, in person. I'm looking for an, an opportunity for that. But our democracy, many of us have said that our democracy is in a crisis uh, right now. You know, what? your sense or concerns about our democracy, um, whether state or national. And I'll start with you, Rep. Herod. Yeah, you know, we are in a
1: crisis within our democracy and and I believe that um, there are a few voices who are very loud, who intend to divide us um, and and intend to I think, weaken our movement, especially the movement for Black lives and acknowledgement of Black people and our contributions to society, um, but also progressive policies in general and democracy. I mean, the, the, the goal is to keep the status quo or to go back to a time when we know uh, wasn't great for Black folks. You know, um, it wasn't great for many folks except for the wealthy ruling class white men, to be honest with you. Um, and that's just not acceptable, but it's working, right? And so these, these like kind of uh, subversive tactics, especially u- utilized through social media, um, are either keeping people out of political conversations altogether, where, you know, 2016, we had this really big growth of folks who are participating in, in politics and public policy, um, or discrediting those leaders who are making those changes through lies, right? Through just making up things and throwing it out and seeing what could stick. Mm-hmm. And Quite frankly, um, that has created um, huge cracks, or I guess illustrated huge cracks within our democracy that could lead to an insurrection at the Capitol where the Confederate flag was flown in in the, in the U.S. Capitol, where that's never happened before in our country's history. And so it is really time, and it's critical that people really do dig in and engage and talk about what our American values are and should be and what that looks like represented through our democracy because we, it is at stake right now. Um, and, you know, we have this great American experiment. That's what, that's what we are. Uh, and it's important that we continue to make, make changes that, that strengthen our democracy, but don't weaken the voice of the people, especially the people who have been marginalized consistently over time.
0: Thank you very much for that. Um, AG Ford, same question to you about concerns about our democracy right now. Well, right? a, a couple of concerns. thoughts.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I likewise am concerned about said democracy, but I'm not, um, uh, I'm, 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 I remain optimistic, however, and it, it, it it's going to sound naive, but the reason why I remain optimistic is because we have, in fact, um, experienced times over the course of our history uh, where, you know, we, we've had to overcome instances of horrifying instances like this, right? We, <laughs> the civil rights movement was my mom's generation, right? It was my mom's generation. It was my my grandparents right before that. Um, and so I'm confident that as long as we stay in this fight, we can continue to move the ball forward. But, uh, but I'm also um, not ignorant to the to the facts of true history. And that that's a whole another issue, right? And the legislature, I'm sure, uh, Les is dealing with these with these questions about the the, the proper role of education and teaching true history. Uh, and, and I know true history, right? I mean, I, I know true history. I, I I can go back to um, you know I, I, I've used the phrase talking about voting. I've used the phrase of open and notorious. It is a real estate <laughs> phrase. It's a it's a legal phrase they use in real estate law, but I borrow it to talk about voting rights. You know because. In my estimation, uh, our government, our, our country has always been open and notorious in a way that it's deprived Black Americans of or undermined the right to vote. Um, mm-hmm. And not just to vote, but to even exist, you know, coexist peacefully in this country. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was the Supreme Court in 1856 that said that Blacks were, and I quote, so far inferior that they had no rights, which the white man was even bound to respect.
0: Mm-hmm. Dread Scott. It was, that same,
2: it was that same dreadful, you know, pun intended dreadful decision because it was, a dread <laughs> case. it was that same dreadful decision where the court also said, and I'll quote again, that blacks were altogether unfit to associate with the white race in either social or political relations. Right. So, I mean, this, this that's true history. that That's that's black and white. That's that's yeah. that, that's in our that's in our history books. That's in our in, in our in our, our legal books. That's what was said. Right. And yeah. and then through our educational systems, we've all we've always known I'm a former educator. You're an educator, professor. It's always been used to indoctrinate. Education has always been used to indoctrinate. It's to it's to it's to inculcate in folks. Things you want them to know, and it's to extricate from them things we don't want them to know. I give, I'll give mm-hmm. you an example, right? Here's the truth: If you want to minimize the role that race played in the Civil War, you say that it was states' rights that was the cause of the Civil War, and not slavery, right? And, and that's what I was taught down in down in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a matter of how we are able to phrase history in a way to to, to tell the truth about things. And I'd be quiet after this. I, I don't I don't care how much someone tries to minimize. Um, the original sin of our country. Here's what I know. I know that William Berry, who was my fourth grade grandfather, uh, I know the history, the oral history of my family. I know he was sitting on a slave plantation in in Arkansas, in Fordyce, Arkansas, um, getting ready to be sold. He was on on the auction block and um, he refused, spoke up for his humanity uh, and said, I will not be separated from my wife and my children. This is what the oral history of my family tells me. So they didn't sell him; They killed him right there on the auction block. And then they sold three of his sons to a slaver in Texas. Um, and one of those sons was my third great grandfather and, and I'm the progeny of William Berry. Uh, and here we are four generations later and we're still fighting for our humanity. Uh, but but I will continue to do that because I know that it's his blood that, that's, that's in me and true history tells me that if the worst I got to do is to be called a bad name, <laughs> Uh, or or, or the, because I've been called everything but a child of God, you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. The worst I gotta do is to to have to face angry moms every once in a while, then I'm standing in tall cotton because William Berry lost his life. You understand? Wow. Um, Now, to be sure, um, sitting here today, we can still lose our lives. But but I do reflect on the fact that uh, it was, we've come a long way from William Berry, and so I remain optimistic that even as we continue to defend the existence of our democratic republic, um, against these attacks, um, we, we, we can still prevail.
0: Well, it, it's interesting that you should mention that because something that's been on my mind, um, for a while over the last few years, but, but really, I mean, there, there's, there's the length of time, you know, depending upon how you are raised and what your grandmother told you, these things are stories that date w- way back, but in the space of seeing children separated from their parents and being put in cages. Of course, that was part of a, a black legacy. So I think a lot of Black Americans could resonate and uh, with that, and hence um, a lot of uh, Black people, a lot of Black women um, being very outspoken about what it was that they saw. But something that comes to mind, especially given what you just said, is that um, as I'm with audiences sometimes, I, I you know I ask them, you know, what do you think that a mom says the night before the auction? to convey to her child, who's gonna be sold off the next day, something that keeps that child strong, whole, knowing their humanity, that no matter someone saying that they are chattel, no matter someone, even the Supreme Court, stating exactly what uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney said in Dred Scott, but that that child matters knowing that that parent will never see that child, very likely ever again. But something to your point about hopefulness and resilience because something was conveyed in those moments that lasted for generations. So this brings me to the end of our program with a last question. And this last question is about a silver lining. What do you see as hope going forward um, generally for our democracy or the, the work that you're in. And so I'll start with you, Rep Harrod, and then I'll end with you, A.G. Ford.
1: Yeah, well, I, I will say that um, what you just said was really powerful, and I'm just going to sit with that for a, a while after this call as well. And I want to thank um, Aaron for, for telling his family story and for, for serving in the way that you do. Um, I admire both of you so much. And it just makes me think, wow, I, I'm not a parent, uh, I am thinking that it might be very similar to the conversation that um, parents have with their black children on a regular basis um, in, in dealing with law enforcement uh, interactions, um, and you know just the the it, it it the weight that we still have in our communities because of you know the moments of dehumanization that we experience to this day, you know, um, and so when I think about positivity and hope and what is to come, we are making those changes. You know, Um, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have done this work, who have fought for our rights, and who said that they will not stop, including, you know, of course, uh, Congressman John Lewis, and so many others. And so, you know, I, I am hopeful, and I find hope in the fact that there are so many of us now in these elected positions, supporting elected officials, activists, um, and so many others who are saying, we are going to make change. We are not going to take discrimination anymore. And the change that we make, while while it might be a sacrifice, it will be lasting. Uh, And so I see so much hope in that because we are making change and it will be lasting and we are creating a better future for all of us. And that's exciting, even though we're in times where it's hard to be excited and hopeful and optimistic about, things. I know that we're going to look back on this time and say, we made a real impact for people's lives. And in the future, our kids, the next generation, their lives will be better because of the sacrifices that we all are making. So thank you so much for having me. It's just been a really great conversation and I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: I appreciate you so much. I admire you so much. Thank you for, for being with us at ACS today. And A.G. Ford, silver linings, what's the hope going forward?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm gonna try to uh, get this in because I, I view it as a continuum of progress. Right. I, 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 I didn't have to go back to the fourth generation, my fourth grandfather, to talk about why I'm optimistic. Right. When I was inaugurated on the on uh, February 2nd, 2013, as a state senator, my father in law, who was in his late 70s then, was so happy. He was happy not only because I was inaugurated, but because he noticed that as we walked throughout the building, they called me, sir, doctor, senator, opened up my doors. They were very respectful of me. And he said to me, I'm so happy because they called me boy till I was 40. <laughs> That's what my father-in-law told me. And I get chills as I think about it. Right. And this is, he, you know, this is my father-in-law. Right. Yes. He's, they called me boy till I was 40. And he saw some progress just in a short amount of time. Now, to what he sees, I'm getting doors open for me and they're calling me sir and doctor. Right. And, and, and the reason why I call it a continuum is because I tell my three black sons and my black nephew, the reason why I, I was going to name my school, the Carter G. Woodson International School is because Carter G. Woodson wrote this book called The Miseducation of the Negro. Yes. I'm going to paraphrase something in there. And he says that if you control the way he says, if you control the way a man thinks, you don't have to worry about the way he acts man or woman, if you control someone's thought process, you don't have to worry about the way they act. And back then he was talking about black men and women being told to go to the back of the building. He says, if you tell them they got to go to the back of the building and come to a back door, they will always go to the back of the building and look for a back door. And if there's not one there, they will dig a hole through the wall to walk. And make one. (laughs) Exactly. And so I told my sons, I've been in the business of mind control since you were born because I'm not making you go through a back door. I'm telling you, you're brilliant, you're great, you're honest, you're you're not trifling, you're not lazy, you are the one who can do whatever you wanna do. I've been in the business of mind control for a long time and so I'm excited about the fact that this continuum continues through my son, through through my son, through my progeny, and so now I have a, a second year medical student who's president of his class at Georgetown, right? You know, I have a a, a junior in college who's brilliant and who's who's entrepreneurial. I have a junior in high school who's going to continue to this continuum going forward. So that's why I remain optimistic. That's a silver lining for me is that we are the we we, we are the descendants of survivors at some level, and we will continue. Yes to survive as long as we keep keep this mindset about us and so thank you again for having me Michelle good to see you Leslie and thank you ECS this has been a great conversation
0: Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Representative Leslie Harrod and State Attorney General Aaron Ford for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to you, our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests, It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcast. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show, or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at mismagazine.com. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Candy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. Our creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, social media by Lillian LaSalle, and music by Chris J. Lee, and of course, Steph. Wilner provides brilliant executive assistance.